Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I will be talking to the author of Defenseless Under the Night, The Roosevelt Years and the Origins of Homeland Security. The book is published by Oxford University Press this year, and the author is Matthew Dalek. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I will be talking to the author of Defenseless Under the Night, The Roosevelt Years and the Origins of Homeland Security. The book is published by Oxford University Press this year, and the author is Matthew Dalek. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to uh, to have you on, to have read the book, um, to read this book of political history. Before we get to it and its important subject matter, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? So I am uh, an associate uh, professor in the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, and my training is as a, a historian. I, I uh, went to Columbia for my PhD, and uh, prior to this book, I also wrote uh, a book called The Right Moment, uh, which was about Ronald Reagan's first uh, campaign in California in 1966 and about the shifting character of uh, California politics amid the social uh, upheavals in, in the mid-1960s. Yeah, the, the, the book you've written now uh, moves us back in time from there. Um, and, and this is a period uh, of time in American politics um, – that has been well covered by historians. Now, why do you think this particular part of the story that you focus on has not yet been addressed? Why hasn't there been the attention paid to this dimension of the Roosevelt presidency that you bring to the subject matter? It's a really interesting question, and, and it is partly why I think I wanted to write the book, which is that the the story of Eleanor Roosevelt and Fira LaGuardia and their time at the Office of Civilian Defense is usually a pretty unhappy one. I mean, it's often described as a kind of interpersonal misadventure and and a series of, uh, of political failures. And, you know, both LaGuardia and Eleanor Roosevelt are, are depicted usually in the space of a few pages uh, in a larger biography uh, or uh, uh, another uh, work. Uh, that brings them in and focuses on them, but their time uh, running civilian defense is is restricted to uh, a very short uh, part of the story, and it's usually a pretty unhappy uh, story. So, uh, I thought that the more the more research I did, I thought that there was a a larger narrative and really a set of larger themes that both interested me but that I thought had not been taken seriously. Now, the other piece, too, I should mention is that, you know, civil defense typically uh, is focused, you know, people have written a lot of books about civil defense in the Cold War. Uh, Usually uh, the focus is on 
some of the more absurdist and, and cultural uh, aspects of it. It's how unworkable uh, uh, it was, the kind of propagandistic uh, elements to it. Um, and then even in World War II, when people have written about it, like in Richard uh, Lingeman's uh, uh, book about the home front, uh, it, civil defense is seen as something of a national laughingstock. And so I wanted to, to treat it seriously. I wanted to focus on um, the, the different visions of liberalism between Eleanor Roosevelt, Fiora LaGuardia, and I wanted to kind of give it a context and not describe simply a, a kind of wartime agency, but talk about uh, these different visions for what the home front uh, uh, should, what democracy on the home front means in the middle of total war. Now, you begin the book with the Orson Welles of War of the Worlds radio broadcast. I wonder if you'd refresh our memory just a little bit about what Welles did in this broadcast and, and how listeners reacted. The, the start of the book is, is so compelling in that way. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so uh, this uh, was based on uh, uh, the H.G. Wells uh, a novel and Orson Welles' uh, uh, adapted it basically for uh, radio drama, and uh, it, uh, he broadcast it on uh, Halloween Eve, just before Halloween, so late October uh, 1938, uh, around the time of uh, the debacle at Munich. And he uh, basically, without telling the audience, uh, really recreated uh, – an episode uh, in which uh, aliens uh, landed. Uh, there was a, a, a typical broadcast of uh, uh, Ramon uh, a Raquel Orchestra was playing music, and then it was interrupted by a news broadcaster on the radio. It had the feel of verisimilitude, so it, it felt you know like a voice of authority had broken in, and uh, and the voice of authority, this this uh, newscaster described. Uh, basically aliens with heat rays uh, who had landed in New Jersey who uh, were uh, uh, starting to kill uh, uh, U.S. soldiers who had gone to meet this, who were starting to, to uh, uh, destroy uh, parts of the city um, uh, in New York City. And, and so the lore about War of the Worlds, and this was reflected in the newspaper uh, coverage uh, in the days following, Following was that it sparked a mass panic, and uh, subsequently, in in recent years, uh, some historians have found, and I think I think persuasively argued that newspapers uh, uh, overhyped the uh, the reaction; that not nearly as many people actually panicked. But what I was really most interested in is in the debate among. Newspaper columnists, intellectuals, political leaders such as uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, uh, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, for example, uh, about what did it mean that the American people panicked in response to a report, a radio report of an alien invasion? Why would people be so prone to panic? And and it's that debate that I think I, I wanted to uh, start the book with and to kind of uncover this sense that it is possible that that civilization in a sense could unravel that people could uh, go mad in the face of total war and that the united states felt 
uh, deeply vulnerable to uh, the 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 multitude of threats that uh, that people were reading about and hearing about in Europe and Asia. Now, as you've mentioned a couple of times, Eleanor Roosevelt is one of the primary characters of this book, and you talk about the sort of the change of beliefs that she had between the wars, uh, her different views of, of a war and peace, and and the different ways in which she was approaching the use of military force. I wonder if you could just sort of connect those two time periods in Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, uh, view of the world uh, for us. Um, where was she and, and where did she get to uh, by the time your book starts? So, yes, yeah, she uh, in uh, World War One uh, was the wife, uh, obviously, of the assistant uh, secretary of the Navy and was in Washington, D.C. and was fulfilling uh, some of uh, the, the traditional uh, roles of uh, of being the wife of the assistant secretary of the Navy. Uh, but she was also volunteering in a variety of capacities, including at a Red Cross uh, Canteen and, and working sometimes 12 or 14 uh, hour days as part of the uh, a war effort. And uh, she was actually uh, in, uh, uh, she heard Woodrow Wilson address Congress uh, in uh, 1917, giving, uh, asking uh, Congress for a declaration of war. Um, so she uh, had a kind of front row seat uh, to uh, the first uh, World War, at least uh, from, from the perspective of the United States. But you know, like many progressives uh, in the immediate post-war world, uh, quickly became disillusioned. And following uh, the currents of thought in the uh, uh, post-war uh, uh, aftermath, uh, she became a progressive. You know, she believed that, and this is, uh, was driven home in a sense by, she toured some of the battlefields with, uh, with Franklin Roosevelt uh, after uh, the war, toured, toured some of the European battlefields, and she came away with really a, a deep sense, a deep felt sense of the horror of war and all the widows uh, who had been uh, created uh, by by this slaughter. And so she uh, began to argue that war was pointless uh, and that, uh, you know, the only answer was peace and it was peace at all costs. But I think to her credit, she relinquished uh, beginning slowly in the mid to late 1930s, slowly around the time of the Spanish Civil War, she relinquished these long-held, deeply felt pacifist views and became, as, as I argue, and this is sort of where I begin the book, uh, one of the most, uh, one of the more hardline liberal anti-fascists. And she goes around the country, actually, and talks to a number of, uh, uh, of her allies who remain pacifists and basically says, uh, you don't want to go to war, and I don't want to go to war, but war may come to us. And she starts to make the case for a military buildup, for military mobilization. Now, Eleanor Roosevelt's not alone in this pursuit. Uh, New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia is also involved. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about LaGuardia for those of those not like myself in New York who, who know LaGuardia well. Um, but as important as that, um, how he viewed these threats to the homeland and how he viewed these differently than Roosevelt. Yeah, so LaGuardia is also uh, a fascinating uh, character, and obviously there have been some, some very good biographies written of him. 
Uh, he was actually uh, a combat pilot in World War One, and he flew uh, combat planes uh, in Italy for the United States uh, while he was a congressman, a member of Congress. And uh, he uh, uh, was awarded uh, various uh, medals. He was uh, recognized as a hero. People called him the flying congressman. And so he had a, a very long-standing fascination with and passion for air power. Uh, he also, though, like Eleanor Roosevelt, became a pacifist after uh, World War One and, and in the 1920s. But beginning in uh, the early 1930s, he was one of the, as far as I can tell, one of the earlier uh, New Dealers to uh, see Hitler as a grave menace and to take Hitler uh, quite seriously. And he actually started denouncing uh, Hitler. Uh, he called him uh, uh, a lunatic, uh, uh, basically, in 19, I think as early as 1933. And uh, then by the late 1930s, he was denouncing Hitler <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me, as, as street trash and uh, and saw Hitler, I think, as a threat to uh, uh, democratic uh, norms and, and institutions, which uh, he had uh, come to believe in. And, and he thought that Hitler, gradually he became to believe that Hitler posed a menace to New York City and to other metropolitan areas. And that air power uh, could eventually, especially if, uh, as, as the war began, especially if uh, the Allied powers, uh, uh, France and England, were to fall, that uh, uh, New York City and other major cities would be in uh, Hitler's sight. Now, the other, uh, uh, his other vantage point on this was that uh, he was also the ahead of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. So he headed uh, an organization uh, of, of mayors from really the largest cities in the country. And so he also became a, a spokesman for uh, the mayors who felt that the Roosevelt administration was not paying sufficient attention to giving America's cities mil the military protections it needed in this new age of total war. Now, in 1941, Pearl Harbor is attacked, which which brings the country formally into the war. But prior to Pearl Harbor, uh, uh, President Roosevelt had created the Office of Civilian Defense. What did FDR intend for this office to do? And and in placing LaGuardia and and Eleanor Roosevelt at the, at its helm. Um, to what extent did these two agree with his vision, or, or where was the di the differences between what FDR intended and these two uh, tried to implement the the purpose of the office? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and the question leads almost to a discussion of uh, the creation of a wartime agency and and all the unintended consequences, unforeseen uh, consequences that that flow from that, and also. A recognition that really a struggle over what uh, what was then called home defense, what it even meant, uh, ensued once it was created. So Franklin Roosevelt established this office 
in May of 1941. He did so basically under pressure from a multitude of advisors. Some of them wanted this office to uh, do morale on the home front, saw it as a kind of propaganda agency uh, that could uh, keep people's spirits high and inform them about the war effort. Part of it was uh, uh, this idea of social defense, which Eleanor Roosevelt had long championed, the idea that as the country was mobilizing militarily, it also had to uh, mobilize socially and economically and help people left behind and really kind of help finish uh, the New Deal revolution uh, by, by making uh, uh, domestic life more, more socially just, more economically uh, 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 viable for, uh, for Americans, and give people a greater stake in defending uh, their democracy. At the same time, another plank of this office was another part of its mission uh, was to, and this is sort of LaGuardia's uh, primary view of it, was to provide uh, uh, hard hats, helmets to civilians, was to recruit air raid wardens uh, to uh, defend against uh, air threats and auxiliary fire and police departments uh, made up of, of uh, potentially millions of volunteers. And so there was really a, a great struggle. And, and Franklin Roosevelt, I think, uh, agreed to put all these elements into the executive order establishing this agency. And in a sense, as was so often his, his practice, uh, he then let his, uh, his aides and, and his advisors kind of fight it out. Uh, and, uh, and it led to uh, a real struggle between uh, LaGuardia and Eleanor Roosevelt and a number of others about the direction of this agency, about uh, how volunteers should be mobilized and also to what end. And, and one of the things that I argue in the book ultimately is that LaGuardia developed really a vision for, for liberalism that primarily, at least in, in the role that he inhabited as director of this office, uh, was primarily about militarizing the home front in, in times of threat. Whereas her vision, uh, she was supportive of, of some of what LaGuardia was doing, but that she also felt that, that just as important was establishing a wartime New Deal, making democracy uh, more worth defending and winning hearts and minds also around the globe, that democracy was the, the best form of government, uh, which was a way to ward off uh, fascism's ideological appeal as well. So, so it was that clash among these liberals that I was interested in, and, and it's sort of a clash of, of guns and butter, but also uh, between security and, and liberty and civil liberties. Uh, so – um, which, you know, continues, I argue, in some ways uh, in the Cold War and even through our post-9-11 times. And how did FDR respond to this, uh, what became a growing conflict within the Office of Civilian Defense? Uh, what was his what was his response? How did he mediate between these two powerful figures? Well, look, uh, just to step back, so Franklin Roosevelt had uh, other irons in the fire, so to speak, uh, while all this was uh, playing out. And and. Part of the time, he didn't want to be bothered by uh, what was happening, and and so he let some of these debates uh, fester uh, among uh, uh, the first lady uh, between the first lady and the mayor of New York uh, and and others. Um, but ultimately, uh, 
you know, he established this agency in May of 1941, appointed LaGuardia director. Eleanor Roosevelt became assistant director a few months later in September. And uh, by early December, so really on the eve of Pearl Harbor, uh, uh, Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, was uh, becoming um, impatient with uh, LaGuardia and Eleanor Roosevelt uh, uh, jockeying for position. They were both uh, 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 pestering him with, you know, we need more of this and more of that, depending on what their interests were. And so uh, I think he was beginning to look for – and also LaGuardia had really become uh, a, a leading fearmonger. And part of what I think he wanted LaGuardia to do was to help him make the case that the country needed to militarize, needed to mobilize militarily. And LaGuardia did that, and in some respects did that incredibly effectively. But LaGuardia also became a lightning rod, and LaGuardia was doing things like um, uh, telling priests and rabbis uh, what to say in their sermons on Sunday. Uh, during a, a day called Freedom Sunday, as designated by the administration to celebrate the country's freedoms. And so LaGuardia, as he was becoming uh, 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 somewhat unhinged and, and really spreading a message of fear, you know, telling people that, uh, uh, that you know, they had to be ready for air raids, they had to be ready for people dying in the streets, dropping like fr- flies, that saboteurs were going to come in that they would be swept up in what he called the sweeping conflagration of insanity, as he put in the L.A. Times. Um, FDR, I think, was was tiring uh, on him and and was also uh, tiring on on his wife in this uh, in this role. Uh, And then Pearl Harbor happens. And within two months, for 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 various reasons, uh, uh, their positions, LaGuardia's and Eleanor Roosevelt's positions in this Office of Civilian Defense, they just became uh, untenable. And and FDR pushed out first LaGuardia and essentially pushed him out in early 1941. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, about a month later, uh, amid this national scandal, which we can talk about if you wish, uh, uh, pushed out uh, his wife from this uh, uh, Office of Civilian Defense position. Just briefly in conclusion, maybe you can just wrap us up by but just talking a little bit about what you just alluded to. Um, uh, tell us about that, that, next, that next phase. So after Pearl Harbor, uh, LaGuardia and Eleanor Roosevelt, within uh, about 48 hours of, of Pearl Harbor, of the attacks, they're on a plane going to the West Coast, and they take this really amazing uh, journey. They, they, they fly to Los Angeles. They part ways. Uh, uh, LaGuardia goes north. Eleanor Roosevelt goes to San Diego, and then she heads north. And uh, she, for example, visits a number of cities on the West Coast, which was seen in the days after Pearl Harbor as the country's most defenseless region. And there were reports they had that, for example, San Francisco was being bombed. Turned out not to be true, but but these were taken very seriously. And uh, LaGuardia... Uh, uh, on his own accord, started doing things after Pearl Harbor, like telling, uh, going on the radio and announcing all Japanese Americans had to stay in their homes until the government determined their status. He closed Japanese American uh, restaurants and organizations. Uh, uh, he um, uh, was warning 
San Franciscans, for example, that that they were going to be bombed uh, because he had predicted Pearl Harbor. And so the kinds of things that he was saying, um, on again, on his own accord, uh, he had just was doing his own thing and and not really coordinating with the administration. Not at that point was not being helpful to uh, to the to the to the focus that um, at Franklin Roosevelt wanted, which was also on the offensive uh, military operations and getting the Army Navy uh, uh, ready uh, for combat. Uh, and uh, so uh, he pushed out uh, Frank uh, uh, Fiorella Guardia, and then Eleanor Roosevelt uh, in early February of uh, 1942. So within two months of Pearl Harbor, uh, it was reported in the media and then Congress that she had hired one of her friends, uh, a, a fan dancer, a semi-nude dancer named Maris Cheney. Uh, paying her an exorbitant sum, hired her at the Office of Civilian Defense, so government salary, uh, to teach uh, dancing to children as a way of raising their morale in case the bomb should fall in the country. And this became the first uh, major political scandal after Pearl Harbor. And it was, uh, uh, the story was everywhere. She became uh, the biggest lightning rod, and this was uh, just a, a political firestorm that FDR didn't need. It allowed the conservative critics to uh, say that, uh, uh, you know, as a way of attacking uh, Roosevelt's New Deal, that sh- that Eleanor Roosevelt was trying to do a backdoor New Deal. And so uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, pushed her out within about mm, within two weeks of, of uh, the scandal breaking. Um, and uh, and James Landis comes in and takes over. But but that was the end of their uh, a formal involvement, Eleanor's and, and Fiorella's formal involvement in this uh, Office of Civilian Defense. Yeah, again, the book is Defenseless Under the Night, The Roosevelt Years and the Origins of Homeland Security. Again, the author who you've been hearing from is Matthew Dalek. Uh, the publisher is Oxford University Press. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Heath. I really appreciate it.